Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. As we actually finish up our sermon series this week on this Get Your Life Back series, as we're wrapping that up, I think this is kind of a good lead-in. <laughs> and we didn't actually totally plan this this way. We had this filmed, I don't know, maybe two months ago, and something happened with the audio, and it got all messed up, and so Ryan had to go back in and film it, and we ended up, it get, got scheduled for today. And so I think, I think there was a, a Holy Spirit moment working in there, because what we're going to talk about today is the things that we remove from our lives and what we replace it with, and being careful about that content, about that. That 15 hours just is staggering when you think about it. So how do we get more time back? How do we reprioritize? How do we claim the life that we were intended to have, the life that we were created for as God's image bearers? That is who we are, God's image bearers. We are meant to bear the image of God to the world. So we've got to take our life back from the world. It's got to come from God, and it's got to look like Jesus and so reclaiming our life in Jesus' name because our life is in union with Jesus. And the world uses a lot of tricks and deception to try to convince us that either we are unworthy to be an image bearer of Christ or that maybe we just have a better plan than God's. And the world tries to deceive us in those ways and it tries to assign an identity to us other than Christ. And it does that by these three ways, it does it by dictating an unrealistic pace based on unrealistic expectations and unrealistic promises. There is never going to be enough time, enough patience, enough justice, enough of you or me to go around to be able to fill in all the places that the world is pulling us into. And Jesus, he operated and functioned totally differently from the world. He realized and recognized that need to get away, to spend time in God's presence, to have those moments with God, to listen and to speak to him as well. And this isn't, this isn't a new experience. When we go back and look in Scripture from, for centuries, even before Jesus, well, about the time of Jesus, John the Baptist was an Essene. And the Essenes were a desert people. They lived separately so that they could hear from God about the return of the Messiah. They ate differently. They lived differently. They separated and felt a need to separate themselves from the world that they were in. And I think at this moment, if any of us thought we could get plopped down into that world and have to go at that pace every day, we'd be pretty happy. We would put the brakes on quite a bit. 
But even in their circumstances, they were still seeking that. And then even after Jesus was here and after he rose, we had the desert mothers and fathers, and that was about 200, 300 AD. And that was the, the mothers and fathers who were trying to listen to Christ, to listen and speak and hear from God. And so they separated themselves. They literally went out into the desert. So many of them went that they started to call them cities. So even in their attempt to get away from the hustle and bustle and the pace and to quiet all those outside voices, they moved in masses. And then that led eventually to the monasteries and the monks and and all of that movement as well. So as fast and frenzied as we think our pace in life is, There's something in us that has always felt that. And it's not necessarily the pace per se or the content that's any different. It just comes at us. It's still the world trying to speak into us and trying to shape and mold us, trying to prevent us from hearing God's word and God's message. But that unrealistic pace that I was talking about, Jesus traveled at three miles an hour. That's his pace for ministry. That's the pace we are called to be like, who we are called to mimic in ministry. He walked at three miles an hour. I had two people after, after the first service tell me that they were working up to, on the treadmill, they were just at 2.6 right now. And he said, now I have a goal. My goal is to get to three and walk at Jesus's pace. <laughs> and then I thought that would be so cool if you could like go to the Y and then when you set the pace, it would be like Jesus pace and you could just press that button. <laughs> but it's a wonderful reminder to slow down all the relationships that Jesus did and built, he was walking at that three miles an hour when he was interrupted and he healed people. He didn't have to get in a hurry. He had a sense of urgency. He knew what he was here to do and he knew his time was limited. But he still walked at that three mile an hour pace. We lived in Greece for a year and one of my favorite things about Greece other than, well, the food is amazing, but one of the things that they observed and did every day, they siested. It was about two o'clock in the, between one and two, when it was kind of dependent on the heat and what was going on, but things would just start shutting down. There wasn't a restaurant open, there wasn't a store open, you could not buy anything. The doctor's offices shut down, I had pediatrician appointments at like 7.30 and 8 o'clock at night because they opened back up in the evening when it was cool. But the world shut down. Everyone went home, they ate lunch, and they took a nap. I think the whole world would be a little better if we did that every day. But that pace of life was so different. And it makes you slow down. And it makes you have those moments and it builds into your routine and your schedule, those moments for relationship, for food, for restoring yourself, for being with your family. It's a different pace than what we go at right now. But there's also the unrealistic expectations of the world. In God's kingdom... The last shall be first, and servant love is exalted. And we are expected to love others because he first loved us. What seems impossible to love everyone is made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. The world has expectations of us 
that we are supposed to live and do things in a way that deplete us. Jesus' expectations of us fill us back up because we're filled and we're able to do those things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the world promises a lot. But Jesus, he promises something new, a new life that is far from unrealistic if we don't do it on our own. They're not unrealistic promises. We are promised new life in him. And we're able to do it because he conquered sin and death on the cross. So it's not just about wanting to have more downtime or less frenzied life. What I want to talk about today is that we are called to be filled with him. We are called to be in union with Jesus. It's not about just getting more of the same old life at just a slightly different pace or different schedule so that I'm a little more rested and relaxed. There's an article that um, Bert shared with me this morning. And one of the quotes that's in it that he's sharing over in the sanctuary as well is from Antonio Damasio. He is director of the USC's Brain and Creativity Institute. And what he talks about in this article is that they've done all this recent research about fear and trauma and its impact on our brain, and they're just now really starting to study higher-level emotions and how those emotions emerge from the neural processes and how they move through those neurons in our brain and how we're wired. They move at an inherently slower pace. The higher level emotions move at a slower pace. It's like this is how we were designed to be, how God intended us to be. We were designed to move at a slower pace and process things in a much slower way. And we can declutter. We can declutter our social media. We can declutter our lives. We can declutter from physical items. We can declutter from dysfunction in our lives by setting boundaries in our relationships. But what I want us to talk about today is what we're going to fill that space with. I'm on a Facebook page about minimalism because I kind of kind of dabble, we'll say, in minimalism. But you can see some people that minimalism becomes their new idol. They've gotten rid of all this other stuff, but they have filled themselves so much with this focus on minimalism, and they're expecting to find peace and reprieve from life in minimalism. It's not where they're going to find it. It's great to, to, to minimize your resources and be careful with what we do and that we're not wasteful, but we're not gonna find our peace in that. And sometimes when we do that, when we start to declutter, when we start to move those other things out of our lives, we can fill our lives just with other idols as well. We can make that minimalism into an idol and then we can start to fill our lives with idols. And we've been in John these past few weeks and looking at this story of Jesus and how he's responding to all these different demands and interruptions, how the disciples and Jesus attempt to get away, and how Jesus manages to make that happen, and how he responds in all those situations. And we see what Jesus has gone through, and I think there's so many aspects of this that we can relate to, kind of that unrelenting nature of life. Jesus goes to Nazareth where he is rejected by his family and friends. He sends the apostles out to heal and to cast out demons. They're facing rejection. 
they're also empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to experience that. In the meantime, John the Baptist is beheaded. They try to get away, and then they end up with a crowd and healing and feeding 5,000 people. And then the disciples try to get away again. Jesus sends them out in the boat, and the storm hits. It's like they just can't catch a break. And where we're going to be in Mark today, John, or excuse me, in John today, kind of gives us the rest of the story. We've been reading in Mark, sorry. And we're reading from John today. So this little passage that we're going to read today isn't in Mark, but it's kind of the rest of the story and what happens once they get to the other side. It's John 6, 25 through 33. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Now keep in mind, they just saw him feed 5,000 people over there the day before. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In this instance, when he's saying, they're saying he, they're referring to Moses. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In this passage, Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. And we will never go hungry again. That we will never be thirsty again. And so when we talk about getting our life back, it's about a life filled and sustained by Jesus. But what does it mean to get your life back if that life is bread? Jesus uses this metaphor. We see it all throughout Scripture. What does it really mean, and why, why bread? Why did Jesus choose that? Why did God choose that as a way to express this? Being in union with God is not just about following the example of Jesus. These men who approached Jesus from the crowd, they had followed him literally followed him around the lake that day. They had seen Jesus put the disciples on a boat. They had seen Jesus here. And then the next morning, Jesus and the disciples were over here. And they couldn't quite figure out how that happened. But then when they're talking to Jesus and they're trying to figure all this out, they followed him over there. So there's some level of belief. But then you can kind of see a little bit into their hearts and what they're actually, what their motive is for following him because they're like, hmm, you know, Moses fed his people every day. You, you know, just fed us one time. How are we supposed to believe in you? And Jesus responds, 
this is who I am. I am the bread of life. I will sustain you eternally. And Jesus answered to them when they ask, what works does God require? Meaning, what do I have to do to get more out of this? Jesus' answer is to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in Jesus, to know him. To know him, my father, you have to know me. You have to recognize me and believe in me and know who I am, not just follow me because you want your tummy filled up again. They're kind of asking, what are you going to continue to do? They're looking for an easy path, I think, at this time. They were fed yesterday, but they look and they see, well, Moses did this every day. And Jesus reminds them that they have it all wrong, first of all, that it was not from Moses, it was from God, my Father who gives you the true bread in heaven. Holding on to this perception of Jesus was damaging their ability to see who Jesus really was. If we don't see Jesus for who he really is, then we can't be in union with him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means an active, tangible, demonstrative trust. Jesus uses these physical things to symbolize who he is and how we are to participate in his kingdom and how we are to participate in worship and how we are to know him better. It's one of the reasons we take communion on a weekly basis. It's one of the ways that Jesus communicates that to us. So we're going to dive into a little bit more on that bread part. Why did God pick bread? Why that image? How is that connected back to the manna? The beautiful thing about Scripture is you get these beautiful threads sewn all the way through Scripture. You can pull in a little bit on this end, and you start to see where it comes out over here. And you see it woven through Scripture in many different ways. And this imagery of bread and manna goes all throughout Scripture. We're talking about how he's going to feed us, but not just feed us something that's going to sustain us for a day, but feed us for all of eternity because he is the source of eternal life. And Jesus uses this very concrete analogy, bread and wine, to express a supernatural reality. He wants us to hunger and thirst for him like we hunger and thirst for bread and water, to be filled and sustained through him, filled with him so that we are sustained through all those interruptions and disruptions that life throws our way. So that we are sustained through rejection, through loss, through busy schedules that distract us, that fill our lives with things and messages other than what comes from God. So getting our life back is about making room for those things that help us find union with God. And Jesus repeatedly goes back to that metaphor of the bread and that it provides us an opportunity to be filled with the bread of life. So that manna, let's look back at that a little bit and think about their perspective and what they're asking of Jesus and what they're thinking on. When we are reading scripture and thinking about it, we can meditate on it. And guess what? You can't meditate quickly. The whole thing about meditating is that you stop. You think about things. 
You can listen to the podcast on your way home, but maybe in the mornings, pick a scripture, pick an idea, pick this idea of the bread of life or manna, and just think on it while you're driving to work. Think on it while you're waiting in the line, the pickup line at school. Give yourself some time to meditate on it and think about what Jesus was thinking and about how that applies to you. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to kind of meditate on that and think about it and pull it apart a little bit. Get that bread, pull apart. Got it. Um, It appears daily. In the Old Testament, when the manna comes, it comes every single day, except for the Sabbath. The amazing thing about it, the people are called to respond to it, to go out and collect it. But there's never too much. There's never too little. They're to take just enough and trust in God's provision through their obedience. And every single morning there is manna. It's delivered quietly. It's delivered gently. It's a gift for God's people that is a reflection of God's grace and love and righteousness. This is part of the process of sanctification. If you look at it, They've been delivered from sin and death, and now God is reshaping them. And he's using this morning delivery of manna to help do that, to teach them to rely on him, to move at his pace, with his expectations, with his promises. They are experiencing God's love and grace and mercy, and he is shaping their hearts and minds through that. No matter how much we have of God one day, we need to have him again the next day. That manna keeps coming back day after day. It's an ongoing relationship with God. Jesus shows up day after day with more grace and more forgiveness. But let's talk a little bit about the people in that situation who didn't follow what Jesus asked them or what God asked them to do. And I think these are the same things that sometimes get in the way of us being obedient. They were probably filled with fear. So they gathered too much. They'd been hungry. They were scared to be hungry again. They didn't want their families to be hungry. They're worried that this whole thing is just going to fall apart. We're out in the desert It's still not looking real good. Maybe we should just go back. Maybe we'll all just be scattered. Maybe we'll all just perish. There's past betrayals and disappointments that have shaped how they see the world, a distorted image of God, a lack of stillness and silence before God. And bottom line, they just have to let go of control and trust God. Any of those things sound familiar? The things that get in the way of us being in union with Christ? The result is a misunderstanding for what it means for Jesus to be our bread of life. God provided that manna daily. He provided a structure and a rhythm and a direction, and their lives revolved around that structure, that rhythm, and the direction of God. He was sanctifying them. He was reshaping them. Even on the Sabbath The day before, he would provide extra, just enough, and it didn't rot on that day. God was in the details of all of this. He provided bread for all of God's children. 
And to have this bread, all they had to do was trust God and corporately labor and share together. So we get our lives back when we start to follow the structure and the rhythm and the example of Jesus. Jesus was fully God and he was fully human. It means he fully experienced that rejection in his hometown. He fully experienced the loss of his cousin. He fully experienced exhaustion. But he also fully experienced prayer and being in the presence of his father. He fully experienced laying his fears down at the feet of God. Take this cup from me, he prayed. And we have that same opportunity. We have that same opportunity to lay those things down before God. We have the same opportunities to pray and to be restored in God's presence. Communion is a time to remember. It's not just an act of remembering something, but it's actually called anamnesis, just the fancy Greek word for taking something that happened in the past and not just remembering it in the future, but it becoming a reality, a current reality in the present. Getting our life back to what God intended. When we see Jesus for who he really is through the bread of life, helps to reset the rhythms and the patterns and the direction and the priorities of our life. So what is standing in your way? What's standing in your way of being in union with Christ? What things do you need to release that are taking up room in your heart and mind that prevent you from being in union with Christ? Like I said, Jesus offers us something very tangible and beautiful ways to lay things at the cross. And when we partake in communion, when we receive God's grace, I want you this morning to, as we come to receive, to take some time, whether it's here at the altar or at your seat, wherever you're most comfortable. And I want you to lay down those things that are standing in the way of you being in union with Christ. Your fears, your sin, your brokenness, the things that are disrupting your life, interrupting your life, and leave those things here. Let God take care of them. And that's what we're called to do as we take communion, to leave our sin and our brokenness at the, the altar and take this time as we prepare to sing another song and then before we take communion to allow God's structure, God's rhythm, and God's direction to lead you in prayer and in the presence of God and linger at the altar. Leave those distractions here and feast and fill yourself with Christ this morning.